some of the Greek philosophers, they had this idea that for human beings to be balanced in their way of, of being and conceiving of the world, they had to walk a path with one foot equally in mythos and one foot equally in logos. So one in, lo one in logic or the rationality of life and the other one in mythos and the mythopoetic in the deeper soulful aspects of life. And of course, in the Western world, we tend to live and value the rational and discount the mythopoetic, the mythic. Hello and welcome to the Wild Minds podcast for people interested in health, nature-based therapy and learning. We explore cutting-edge approaches that help us improve our relationship with ourselves, others and the natural world. My name is Marina Robb. I'm an author, entrepreneur, forest school, outdoor learning and nature-based trainer and consultant and pioneer in developing green programs for the health service in the UK. You're listening to episode 21, Indigenous Spirituality. For this episode, my guest today is Angharad Wynne, a published poet and writer, a storyteller, speaker, teacher and expedition leader. She's also founder of Dreaming the Land and Animate Earth Collective. In this episode, on Christmas Day, we go on an ancient journey through time of myth, folklore and spirituality of pre-Christian Britain. We explore animistic philosophy and we have a deep and wholehearted conversation that I am sure you will enjoy. So welcome to the Wild Minds podcast. I'm very grateful to be here speaking with you, Ang Harad. Uh, particularly would love to start with some gratitude. And before I uh, came on air, I was really thinking about that I'm grateful, actually, for the possibility of making mistakes and <laughs> actually... <laughs> and actually beginning and being honest sometimes about my own limitations. And I'm always, 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 and it's a deep thing for me to have the belief that there are people out there that can love me when I can't love myself. So yeah, I wanted to start with that. And, and I appreciate that's quite a, that's quite a dive already, but it felt important to me um, to remember that and to be really grateful, grateful for that. Mm. And would you be happy to share some gratitude? Absolutely. Um, I'll add to that, actually. I have found in my life that exactly what you've just shown gratitude for is actually a superpower. It takes us to a place of vulnerability. And <clears throat> I think vulnerability is, is human glue. It's where we find connection. So I think... The, the capacity that we have to be vulnerable, to say we don't always have the answers, that's where we can really build strong foundations for the future for. Mm. So yeah, yeah. really gratitude, great gratitude for that. Yeah, thank you. Gosh, to already think about vulnerability and it makes me think about forgiveness, because I'm hoping all being well that this podcast will um, come out on Christmas Day. And that feels really significant. Um, and and I wonder, one of the great um, hopes for me to be able to talk to you today is to think a little bit about spirituality and to think about what that means on this land. And uh, people talk about indigenous, um, well, they use the word indigenous, and I don't think that's necessarily a word that everybody understands or everybody has different, you know, will put different meanings upon. But I'm wondering for you, um, are you able to share a bit about what indigenous spirituality may mean for you and for this land 
And we might need to even think about what this land is. But uh, yeah, would you mind starting with that? Let's let's start with that word to begin with. It's a very hot word. And it's one of those words that has become problematic and that it's almost, it's, it's, it's becoming broad in its meaning. And um, yeah, and also controversial in many ways, because because in some some areas it's it's been it's been used to exclude as much as to as to embrace um you know uh, in its original meaning it essentially means of this land of this place and of course you know being welsh um in the true sense of the word yes i'm indigenous to wales you know as far as i know my family stretching back on both sides go back for a very 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 long time um in a small patch of land uh, in southwest Wales, uh, we trace them back to the 17th century and and beyond uh, in in this area. And I've just moved back to the area, which feels great. All my molecules have uh, very much soothed being in in relationship to this to this birth land deep rootedness. Um, but the spirituality of the land, uh, the indigenous spirituality of the land, land everywhere has layers upon layers of story and it has layers and layers of history high story um and layers and layers of um i sense the same as we have somatic sense and we hold somat our somatic history within our bodies so too does the land it holds the energy of of all things that have happened to it. Its geology shapes it, everything. And within that, there is spirituality. But of course, when we start to talk about spirituality, we're talking about the relationship between people and that place, how we've responded to it, how we've listened to it, the stories that have emerged from that place, the spirituality, um, in a way, the inspiration, I suppose, to have wonder for that land to um to honor it to be with it to be in relationship with it that has arisen from that place and here in this corner of this land you know we we talk uh, with the welsh language we 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 always think that the land gave us that language the, the sounds of of the language coming from the land and the same for the stories we believe the stories come from from the land, and that's a very, very old um, belief. But that's, we're at a time now where there is far greater mobility in populations than has ever, ever been before. And one of the biggest questions, the, the most commonly asked question that I come across in the work that I do is, I'm not from this place can I connect to this land? Am I, am I allowed to? And my answer is always yes, of course you are. We are called, I think, to respond and connect to the land that we find ourselves on. And I've never come across a patch of land that has gone, no bugger off, I'm not interested in having a relationship with, with you. Um, not not in you know any any sensible way uh and so my i feel that my work you know i have the i've been lucky if you like um we're all different i was lucky to grow up with a real sense of rootedness from growing up in one place and a deep sense of that land and connection to that land and so i have some tools and my work is to offer those tools to anybody who wants to know so that they can develop a relationship with that land because ultimately <clears throat> that deep connection that bond between humanity and the land on which we stand and the love that we can develop for that is what will turn the tide in the ecological um, disaster that we're heading into you know if we don't if we can't fall in love with the land and with creation around us, we cannot care for it. And 
you know, one of the things that indigenous tribes across the world say, they feel themselves guardians of the land in a very potent way because, not because of dint of birth, but because of this deep connection and the deep love that inspires them to be to be guardians. They cannot be anything but guardians, not just of their piece of land, but to speak up for, for, for nature, for creation as a whole. Can I ask you about these tools? Because I'm wondering about how we 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 build those tools in a way. And I'm also wondering about if if those tools are in some way universal because in your description in your beautiful description of that kind of intimacy with a place and that relationship with a place and how that fosters where you use the word inspiration and um no doubt many other things would you say that there are common tools in order to build this spirituality this living sense body sense perhaps of love yes and i think they are found in spiritual traditions all across the world especially very early spiritual traditions which are animist um in their nature as the you know if we look at the brythonic tradition here the, the tradition of britain in its earliest form like most spirituality it arises from that that early and very primal connection between people and place. It's very animist. It's a, a sense of seeing the whole world as inspirited, as alive, all of creation as as and 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 ourselves as being in intimate and very vital relationship with all things. Ever felt unsure about writing risk-benefit assessments for outdoor sessions? You're not alone. It's a crucial legal requirement that many overlook, leaving them uncertain and unsure about risk. But imagine having the confidence and competence to navigate this seamlessly. That's where I come in. So head to theoutdoorteacher.com slash risk to sign up now and master risk benefit assessments with ease. And lastly, if you're based in the UK, why not immerse yourself in nature with one of my transformative trainings in the beautiful landscapes of Sussex? Discover more about our in-person courses at circleoflife-rediscovery.com. So across the world, there are practices from uh, sitting, being in nature, from making offerings, um, from honouring, from looking at what it is to to consider a place sacred. What does it mean to make sacred? Now, my sense of that is, as human beings, it's very difficult for us to go about our daily lives with a sense of the whole world is sacred. So what we have done since time out of mind is to make proxies, make certain places that maybe have a special energy about them, We've enhanced that by making it a place of pilgrimage, by making it a place where we go to make offerings, by honouring that place and understanding it as sacred. And it becomes a proxy for the whole of creation. What does it mean in this day and age to, to do, to go back and do these practices? Things like sitting on the land overnight, sitting in vigil, that fundamentally changes our, our experience of, of place. To spend a whole night with it in a, in a time which we are different chemically we are we are going through different processes we're not designed to be awake through the night and of course the night is not a realm that we are we tend to be alive and awakening we are guests very much guests in that night time uh, of of landscape and, and creation whereas we are much more at home in the daylight um, and the vulnerability, coming back to vulnerability again, the vulnerability that that opens up of spending a night out you know, awake through the night in nature, it opens to a deeper connection. So there are all these practices that we find in traditions across the world. The Brythonic tradition, because it's 
it is so fragmented. Um, you know, we have 2,000 years of Christianity um, that has, you know, fundamentally uh, changed how we think of, of ritual and ceremony, how we relate to, to place and to, and to life. But more strongly than that, we've got 300 years since kind of the, the time of the Enlightenment and, and the separation that kind of rationalization of everything, that everything could be broken down to some of its parts, everything mechanistic in some way. Uh, here in the West, we are somewhat separated. So the Brythonic tradition, it's, it, you know, we only have tiny fragments left through the mythology, the poetry, the traditions that are, are left down to us. But what we can do and what, you know, I've found, found great generosity from peoples across the world sharing their own traditions and to be curious then about ah that practice that practice keeps turning up in all these traditions. it must have value so what would that have been what would it be like for us to try that within the context of of this land and this place and even before we get to to those practices there is that thing of sitting and listening to the land researching it understanding its history its story looking at um what grows there? The plant life is telling us about about it. What does it What does it want of us? How can we be in this place without without trashing it? I suppose. How can we be with it? In some yeah. Way? So I've been thinking about sacred reciprocity and um, wondering about when you use this word offerings. Um, a number of things come up for me around that. One is that, you know, on a very simple way, when we're doing some nature-based practice with children in the woods, we'll often um, get them to take a little bird seed before we're uh, going to cut a willow because they're going to use the willow to make some craft. And it's, I suppose that's a very, for me, quite an uh, approachable way of thinking about an offering about saying thank you that I'm going to take something and I'm going to remember uh that actually if I didn't take that thing that perhaps that willow would grow to a big old tree but actually I'm gonna I'm gonna be you know cutting its life short because of something that I'm I'm taking and I don't even I wouldn't even say all those words necessarily but it's that act but so this Sacred reciprocity, uh, I've been thinking about that in terms of the practical, the everyday, but also this feeling about giving what we can give, whether it's to the land, um, to support the land thrive, or to a fellow human, you know, this giving rather than what I can receive. And it seems to me from what you were talking about already, and perhaps that goes way, way back in our history, this, this real embodied understanding that, 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 that we are receiving, we're, we're in receipt, and, and this sense of rem really remembering that, you know, trying to remember that, and, and maybe... We have these offerings, and, and perhaps you'll talk a little bit about that within some of the traditions that you are more familiar with. But I'm thinking about offerings like singing or um, a, a dance or um, I don't know. There must be many ways to remind us to remember that, that we are, in a way, always receiving something. And, and I wonder whether that's something that has broken us. And I don't know about the Enlightenment, how that fits into the history yet. You know, perhaps we'll get to that. But just something happened, definitely. Something has happened where we, we're, not, we're not really aware of what we're receiving anymore. We're just taking. You know, we started this podcast with an act of gratitude. And that in itself, energetically, is an offering. It's a, at least a recognition. <clears throat> Let's look at, you know, the, the body of mythology that we have here in Britain. And it's, you know, the, the same principles apply to the mythology and the folk tradition, folklore, folklore traditions of across the world. 
fundamentally the the law that LORE that is contained and enshrined within that body that has been handed down to us by generations because they understood that the next generation needed that guidance is about maintaining balance. Uh, It's about maintaining balance between humans, between neighbours, between the masculine and the feminine, between humanity and nature, so not taking more than we give, and between humanity and the other world, so uh, the ancestors and uh, the spirits of place. So when we look at fairy tales very often, you know how we how we interact with the Taluth Tegin, the Brythonic tradition, the, the, the fairies, proper interaction with the other world, proper respect um, for all for all beings is enshrined in in all that mythology, and we've forgotten that we've fundamentally forgotten that as soon as we lost an understanding that there is consciousness in all living beings, just as we have consciousness, even though it might look and feel different, it gave us permission to take without maintaining balance. And some, you know, some people have have suggested that one of the reasons why we are in such great malaise as humanity right now is that because we have taken so much and given so little back that we have a burden and and that burden is like, it's like guilt upon our shoulders and it's really weighing us down. So it feels as if there's a lot of work to be done. You know, I'm not sure if we can ever address that, but my sense is, is that every time I take a handful of oats or birdseed or I sit with a tree and I sing to it, <laughs> whether it likes it or not, it doesn't matter. I'm offering something of myself. I'm saying I really appreciate. I, I know myself to be in connection with all of you. And I know that that I need to to support this this balance. I'm giving what I can. I'm giving what I what I can to you in this moment. And James Hillman um, has a lovely thing that he said in one of his lectures uh, back, back probably in the 80s, I think. He thought that humanity had been given the wrong uh, Latin term, you know, um, homo sapiens. He thought that we should be homo preciatus because that's fundamentally one of the things that we are designed to do. We, we, we wield metaphor um, naturally. We're story makers. He sensed, his, his opinion was that part of our reason for being on this earth was to offer appreciation back to it because we, we are a conduit for appreciation. We can, we can be awestruck we have the capacity to be awestruck. But we tend to hoard that to ourselves. We tend to take the photo uh, of the landscape and, and hoard that to ourselves. Oh, we've been awestruck. Instead of uh, actually part of that or part of what wells up in me needs to be communicated back and offered back in praise poetry or in song or in offering or simply just in a moment of acknowledgement with all creation, because it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal that we live on this amazing blue planet in the middle of this huge galaxy where life has unfolded and, and life wants nothing more than more life. You know, we have, there is, there is within life an intrinsic yearning for more life. And so Whatever we can do as human beings to support that more life is, I think, partially what what we're here to do. So I'd like to explore what may have led us to be so radically disconnected from this animistic worldview. I think we, we began 
life, we began our existence, you know, uh, of at least for, for very much of our existence, we have been hunter-gatherers. For the vast majority of, of humanity on earth, we have been hunter-gatherers, which by its very nature um, has to be in deep relationship uh, and with a deep and profound knowledge of the natural world around us. As soon as we became farmers, that relationship changed because we started to husband nature. And the, the suggestion from <clears throat> the archaeology and the evidence we have is that we were a bit ambivalent about farming. Um, we adopted it and it spread very slowly, actually. And then there were times here in Britain when we when we rejected it and we went back we tried to go back to to the early ways because um, presumably we preferred it and there was less risk because if your crops failed, you know, that you you were done for. Whereas if you had knowledge of where the roots were and where the bounty of nature was and what to hunt when, and you, you kept it uh, in manageable, you, you didn't collect more than you needed, then it was a pretty good life as a, as a hunter-gatherer. And then, of course, you know, we travel down the ages, and and the relationship with nature changes. And we we hit two thousand years ago, and um, the time of Christianity. And I I really don't want to make this a, a a blame thing at all, because I think what we have is a a misinterpretation. Possibly, there's that line in Genesis, uh, and God gave man dominion over all the creatures. Of the world and all of uh, all of creation. Now, some Hebrew scholars uh, have suggested that that word "dominion" it, it's not necessarily a good translation, or even an accurate translation. It only requires the dots above the Hebrew word to be slightly different or slightly differently read for it to mean something more aligned to care of. Uh, the natural world, and again, that's that. It's not the fault of the text. It's what we as humans then do with that interpretation. And of course, what we do is that we take the interpretation of dominion over, and it gives us carte blanche to do things that many, many years before that, we wouldn't have dreamed of doing uh, to nature, <clears throat> to the natural world, to our fellow kin uh, uh, animals. It sets the scene for what later becomes an increasing um, use of the resources of the natural world of creation without any giving back. <clears throat> Our hunter-gatherer ancestors were very careful to maintain balance. And even now in hunter-gatherer societies, <coughs> excuse me, there is so much ceremony before going hunting. And then when the quarry is brought back, you know, and when it's killed, there's so much ceremony and, and gratitude that there is, a, 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 there is a, an exchange of energy. We've totally forgotten that. I've heard people talk about some of the malaise of humanity at this moment in time being because we are so out of kilter. If we just think about um, the amount of, let's just say, just the animals that are killed to put food on our plates, we, we consume far more meat than we ever, ever have or ever were designed to, to do. And of course, we do that without propitiation. We do that without giving gratitude or doing any ceremony. So there's a we are very much out of whack with a whole balance, energetic balance of of creation. Take it down further, and we get to the Enlightenment, and where everything the scientists strip soul out of the universe completely, and we're down to the building blocks, the chemistry the physics, um, in the, the bare essentials, the very rational. And what's interesting, of course, in the last 
50 years in particular is that scientists are now going back and redressing the balance and actually realizing that without talking about consciousness and without talking about God particles and things, the science doesn't work. Um, that there is something more that they are edging towards, which continually brings us back to a very old indigenous uh, worldview of the aliveness and the consciousness that is inherent in creation. I remember hearing you talk about um, the, I the idea or the reality that in that period of time and now we see something like the dog as as a, a sum of its parts, you know, the anatomical features of a dog, and that's how we kind of relate to a dog. Um, but, of course, we also have this emotional relationship to the dog. Could you just speak a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I think I was speaking about the Enlightenment, and some very horrific experiments went on with dogs uh, and with other animals during that time because they didn't believe that they had a capacity for uh, feeling or any sentience, I suppose. Um, they would be anatomically um, take, taken apart um, and they were understood, um, you know, say for example, the dog was understood as a sum of its part, its bones, its flesh, its muscles, its tissues, its sinews, its brain, its, its innards. Uh, but of course, that can't explain, and this is where the, the enlightenment and the science falls down, is it can't explain what any dog owner knows when you look into your dog's eyes and the dog is looking back at you, that there is connection there, that there is what we would describe as love there. There is sentience there. There's a consciousness at work that seems to want to live. It wants more life. Um, and scientists looking at these things are now understanding that one of the principles of life is that life wants more life and that uh, we can understand this as well on a very primal level. We have so much in common with the natural world. If you hear um, an animal in its, in its death throes wanting to live, we fundamentally, as human beings, understand that there's a connection between us. We understand that it's it, it wants it wants to live, as do we, and that it has a consciousness. And that I propose, and you know, uh, an animist worldview would propose, extends to other living things as well. So the same thing for a tree. Just because the consciousness of a tree is not like mine, it doesn't mean that it has no consciousness. Uh, you know, and increasingly we know about how trees have their own uh, communities and how they look after their own communities, how they communicate within those communities. Now, just because we don't share a language, it doesn't mean that we can't be in communion with each other. There's a very beautiful um, African word called siriti. The word is siriti that uh, Colin Campbell, who I, I work with quite a lot, he taught me. And it's about that sense of beingness, the very beingness of a tree, to be in its presence, that great presence of a tree, to be in with its siriti. And I suppose it, in the Welsh language, the closest we have is anian. Um, it's the beingness, it's the nature of something. And we also understand that that uh, you and I can be of the same anyan. We can kind of be of the same nature, kind of of the same mind, but the, the tree and I can be of the same anyan as well. And language is important, I think, when we're exploring these things. One of the things that old languages, such as the Welsh language, have is that it terms everything as a he or a she. So it's not an it's. We don't have an it's. We don't have an it in the Welsh language. English is different. Most things are it in the, well, in the English language. And that, I think, impoverishes. It strips out uh, uh, an easy, easy, easy way of thinking and languaging 
how we can be in relationship with the natural world. Um, and I think it's something that, you know, I'm very keen that in the groups that I work with, we are keen to try and find language, re-language some of the experiences that we feel we have because they have dropped out of largely of the English language. Mm. And I'm forever curious about, you know, how it has dropped out when I think of a whole history, when you go back to like the Greeks and this um, sense of incredible stories of gods and goddesses that from somebody that's not very schooled in that, I, 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 I listen to it and it sounds very, very fantastical. Um, and yet, and yet it's from the Greeks that we've had deep thought and philosophy. And it, it, and there seems to be this kind of, in the, in, the, in the modern world, this kind of, it's, it's hard to, to sit with both. And yet, because one, one almost, like the scientific paradigm is almost seen as more real than the imaginative world. And I know, I mean, I've had the privilege of listening to you uh, tell stories and I know that you're immersed and ha have so much knowledge about all these things. Would you also share a little bit about that as well, like these differences? Yeah, so the, the, some of the Greek philosophers, they had this idea that for human beings to be balanced in their way of, of being and conceiving of the world, they had to walk a path with one foot equally in mythos and one foot equally in logos. So one in, lo one in logic or the rationality of life and the other one in mythos and the mythopoetic in the deeper soulful aspects of life. And of course, in the Western world, we tend to live and value the rational and discount the mythopoetic, the mythic, um, the, 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 the aspects of the deep aspects, the soulful aspects of life, the poetics of life, if you like. And yet, when we, when I, how I experience the world, and, and this is my truth, of course, and this comes from my, my life, and I suppose my experience of, of living with, with land and with story and with myth, is that the, the creation is constantly in, com in communication with us. Um, most people listening, I suspect, today will be able to identify a moment in their life where either they knew something was about to happen or they were in extremis in some way and a bird flew and landed by them or a cat just came up rubbed against their legs out of nowhere, or there was some interaction that seemed extraordinary and out of the ordinary at a particularly important or poignant moment of life. And so my sense is, is that the universe, creation is speaking back to us. We are in conversation all the time, but we miss it because we miss the fact that it's speaking to us in metaphors and poetry, essentially. And that poetry comes in the forms of beings that cross our path, rainbows appearing in the sky, butterflies, clouds of butterflies arriving around us, just at a particular moment. And if you're not attuned to noticing these things, I think the, the, the conversation lessens and, and gradually, if nobody's, if somebody isn't listening, it can't be heard and the conversation dwindles. But as soon as you start to be open to the possibility of, of conversation, of this mythos in your life, it, the conversation becomes louder again. You begin to notice it and it becomes fascinating and engaging. And somehow life simply becomes richer. Mm. I mean, I love that. And I love that the many, many, many experiences I've had both personally as an adult, but also working with young people in particularly the early years, how there's just this such natural conversation that seems to be happening uh, when you're playing in a puddle or when you're, uh, um, I don't know, sitting under a tree and the raindrops fall on your face. And this, this kind of conversation that keeps happening that seems so... Uh, 
so real and responsive and it, it does feel that as we as we often get older we we do miss these things and we we lose this attunement and we're we're, we're we stay with this what we can touch and see and hold and uh, objectify rather than the possibility the imagination and and yeah i i think it's i think it's such a an important aspect of what it is to be human that we seem to in many ways at least at least in in the, in the world that i've grown up in don't value as you say one of the most profound things that happens in in groups and communities that i work with and i love watching it happen is the very simple thing of being allowed to speak of these things and to have them witnessed and heard and valued uh, and not ridiculed and to understand that there are plenty more people in the world that understand and believe in 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 what we're talking about here than the community of the Western world that largely doesn't. And there's a catharsis uh, for that. And, and it's and it's very beautiful to witness people coming back to honoring that knowing, that known sense of connection with creation, um, as opposed to feeling shamed uh, of having this sense of it. Yeah, it's true. And it makes me think about how if we if we if we could feel that and have that experience and see perhaps a tree as a stranger a powerful stranger that's very very different to ourselves then i think it follows that we would care for and 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 understand this deep reciprocity that exists between living things um, in a way that would i think really help the future uh you know, be a help us to find a way of being, as you've said several times, this more imbalance. And I'm, and I, and whilst I'm saying that, I'm, I, I was thinking before speaking to you uh, today about um, not only the Greeks, because I don't know much about Greek Greek times, but also the Roman times, because it's it's quite understood that uh, the Romans came to this land and. Um, you know, in, in, I guess, warfare, I, I've, I've read lots of stories of the, the, the tribes that lived on this land, uh, 2000 or more years ago, obviously they went way back before that. And, and at the same time, I'm struck by that, that Jesus, because it is Christmas when this goes live, all being well, that, that Jesus was born at a time of the Roman empire and 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 i think being brought up on the one side by a a catholic mother um that that there was this sort of sense in the in the in the kind of catholicism that i was brought up in that you know god was out there and and in a way i had better behave because if i didn't behave i'd be punished <laughs> <laughs> and but but even so, as a child, I would really feel, but if there's a God out there, he, and it was often a he, um, would have to understand. You know, I think I must have been about eight years old and I would think, surely, surely the God out there would understand what was going on if they were so clever, right? <laughs> and, and And the reason why I'm saying that is because <sighs> there's something about, the kind of let's say the roots, the Christian roots, which has obviously Christ in it, which feels that the modern kind of way I I got to receive that was one of dominance. You know, you've talked about that word was one of dominance and and fear. You know, uh, and I think I I will always carry that somewhere, even though you know it wasn't that it came from directly from my mother. It was more the kind of I don't know the stories I was told of uh, you know. So there's a sense of fear, and yet what. I'm imagining that what I've read since about Jesus and a little about the time that, that he was born into, that his message was really about forgiveness and about peace and about um, caring for this for the other and 
actually loving, you know, the land and the people. And, you know, I understand I mean, my, my dad used to say uh, to me like, uh, uh, you know, like this idea of, um, I can't exactly remember what it was now, but it was something about it matters more the penny that the poor person gives uh, to to somebody to help than the rich person who might give loads of money because that penny is worth so much more. And these are all in the stories of Jesus, right? So again, there seems to be something that's happened you know, around what could be really beautiful messages and understanding about loving each other and not othering each other compared to the, some of the stuff I was taught. I think I think this happens in 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 most religions. Most religions at their core are very, very beautiful and mm. have wondrous teachings. It's what we as a society and as culture does with that. Uh, and the dominant classes generally do with that. It becomes propaganda and that's where the problem lies. It's one thing I like about animism. It's not a religion. It's just a, a way of being. It's a philosophy, if anything, but it works alongside um, all the world religions, really, and, and has done for for a very long time. I mean, we were probably mostly uh, animist Christians here until the seventeenth middle mid seventeenth century. Um, but yeah, the the all the world religions. Um, have been weaponized, not all of them, but but a vast swathes of them have been weaponized to other uh, each other. Um, and I think one of the things that we we have to do, um, and it's it's a good time to, I suppose, commit to this at this winter solstice. It's the time of the returning light, time of the returning sun here in the in the, the north, it would have been the time of Saturnalia, the the sun festival of the Romans. And of course, uh, Christianity aligned the, the birth of Jesus to, to that date. Um, it's time to look at how we want to move on in the world, how we want this new dawn, this new light. What, what are we committing to? It's very difficult to for one human being to conceive of how they can change the world, but the <laughs> world is very local to us. Our world is very local to us, and it is in our own actions, one by one, that we change the world. There's um there's a, a an old known magical thing that now scientists have discovered and named. So psychologists have understood that this thing about three degrees of influence, that if I managed to say, say I was a smoker, but if I managed to give up smoking, it enables people within three degrees of my influence to also do that. So if I stand in my truth for something, to do something different, to welcome the stranger, rather than other the stranger, it enables three people within my sphere of influence to do the same. So personal responsibility, taking, taking responsibility for the way we choose to be in the world is incredibly important. And to find kinship once more with the natural world with all creation, all the beings of creation feels, it feels as if that ties in with a message of love and kindness that most of the world, the great world religions have at their core. Yeah. Well, I think that's a wonderful way to close this time together. And um, yeah, is, is there anything else you'd like to just say to, to, to close this, bearing in mind that it's both Christmas and as you said, it's a winter solstice on this land. It's a really beautiful time of rebirth. I think we understand the cycle of life, death and rebirth at the winter solstice in the Northern Hemisphere more than any other time. This miracle that even while the world looks dead and cold around us, the seed is already stirring in, in the soil is in itself uh, a major miracle. And if nothing else, um, it would be 
wonderful if you could gather together during open open your homes and gather together around the fire or around the the heater and just set, share some stories and conviviality with with somebody even your next door neighbor during this time it has traditionally been a time when we have gathered because there is there is comfort and solidarity in people coming together to see these long long nights through uh, and we've been doing it since well as far back as as any history or archaeology can tell um and so it's it, there's some of these old things of humanity we've been doing them for a very long time because there's a very good reason for them and sometimes just by practicing them we discover what that reason is and we discover that we have a lot to learn from our ancestors and that reweaving some of what has been lost may help us into our future oh thank you so much and wish you a a happy christmas and a and a happy winter solstice thank you marina thank you so much for speaking to me and harad what a wonderful conversation join me in 2024 on the 8th of january for a new year's special and have a very merry christmas Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wild Minds podcast. If you enjoyed it and want to help support this podcast, please subscribe, share and leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will help others find the show. To stay updated with the Wild Minds podcast and get all the behind the scenes content, you can visit theoutdoorteacher.com or follow me on Facebook at The Outdoor Teacher UK and LinkedIn Marina Robb. The music was written and performed by Jeff Robb. wondered about the guitar music in my podcast surprise it's my husband jeff robb his show the music of trees is hitting the road across england and wales blending tree stories with woodland melodies catch him live in may june and july tickets available at jeffrobb.com slash shows mm-hmm.